forsake me. Father, we thank you tonight for your amazing, amazing, not only work, but also the word that you communicate to us. We thank you for your presence that's here among us. We ask tonight that you'd open our hearts. I pray that you would lead us, Lord, into a, a life of, of blamelessness, a life of integrity, a life of moral uh, certainty, Father. I pray that you will use us, Lord, each of us individually and collectively, Lord, to impact not only our community, but our nation and around our world. We thank you for uh, the ministries we're involved in in our city, beyond ourselves, and the ministries we're involved in around our world. We pray tonight for our young people who are traveling home from Mexico. We pray for safety. We pray for another team that went to the inner city of Vancouver, that you'd watch over them, protect them, bring them home safely. I pray, Father, tonight that you would speak into our lives, that we'd hear your voice, not my voice, but your voice, Father. And I ask that... Lord, because of what we're going to talk about tonight, that it's going to be a defining moment in our eternity. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Okay, you know, I, I am starting a series on Revelation, but I've taken a little hiatus here. And the next few weeks we'll be into the Easter season. Eventually I'll get back to it. But right now I want to take a look at Psalm 119. I want to I want to talk a little bit about this theme, and I've titled this message, The Blameless Life. Some of you probably have watched the series, The Amazing Race. How many actually have ever seen this television program, The Amazing Race? And I just want to get an idea. Okay, well, let me explain what it's about. The Amazing Race is really two people racing around the world, competing against other teams to win a million dollars. And uh, so they try to do this together. And how many know that under great pressure, people's behavior comes to the forefront? And if you've ever seen the show, you can see meltdowns and all kinds of interesting scenarios. Well, in one of the episodes, they've been running this program now for years. Years ago, I happened to watch this particular episode where they were at the finale. That means they had eliminated a whole bunch of teams. I think there was four teams left. And just before the finale, you know, they have a, they, they have a, what they call the pit stop before they come to the final destination. And the last place team there was not eliminated, but one of the things they do to penalize coming in last is that they took away all their resources. And if you don't have a lot of money, they actually took away all their money. So now they have to figure out a way to get to the last destination with no money. How many know that's a real penalty? <clears throat> and so the last place team was penalized, and so they took off. And this, this couple, they were actually a couple, a man by the name of Eugenia and his wife Joyce. They were contestants in the final race, and, you know, it was amazing as you're watching it. They actually got ahead of the other team members, and they were begging people to give them money. And, of course, how many know when you're begging for money, people would say things like, why don't you get a job, you know, get lost, you know, all kinds of comments. But they just hung in there, and they just kept moving forward. And finally, they got to the actual location. They talked to a cab driver to get to the last spot, and they said, listen, we only have X number of dollars and the cabbie said, well, that's not enough to get there. And they said, listen, just get us there and we'll make sure that you get everything that you're, you know, that you're owed and we'll make sure you're paid at the end of the race, you know, we'll, you know when we get to that spot. So here the, in the last relatively few scenes of the, this last episode, the finale of this season's Amazing Race, they get to this location and Eugenia and Joyce are actually in first place. They get there. All they need to do now is run from their cab through an archway and run down, you know, maybe 200 yards and there's the finish line. And what awaits them is they're going to be the winners of a million dollars. But you see, Eugenia had promised the cab driver, his pay. And so he said to him, listen, I'll give you my wife's wedding ring. If you, you know, and he said, listen, I don't need a wedding ring. What I need is the money from your cab fare. And so these guys jumped out of the cab. And so they start running around and trying to find people to get the last little bit of money to pay off the cab driver. Now his wife, Joyce says, listen, why don't we just run over, cross the finish line, come back and then pay the cab driver. And the guy says, hey, listen, we told him we were going to pay him. We're going to pay him, you know? And how many know that the these uh, programs try to create a little excitement. So finally, they're running around trying to grab the last little bit of money. And what would you not know it? The other, the, one of the, what we would call the anti-type, 
this other couple who had been notoriously underhanded throughout the entire season, who had already won the survival uh, contestant show in another season. These guys were nasty. They were now about ready to get to the finish line. They could actually see Eugenia and Joyce running around trying to get, grab the money. So that's how tense this was. I mean, this is getting interesting. And so you're kind of watching this. And, you know, by this time, you kind of are hoping that the guys that had no money, the people that are trying to do it the right way are going to actually win this thing. And the guys that have been, you know, doing all kinds of dirty stuff to other teams, you don't want them to be the winners, right? That, isn't that kind of the way it works? And eventually, they finally raised enough money. They paid the cab driver and they raced across the line and actually won the, the, the $1 million prize. I mean, it was really amazing. But how many know so often integrity is not rewarded that way? So many times it costs us to be people of integrity. Integrity's reward does not often result in a cash prize. That's what I would say, right? The real rewards are purity of character, a clean conscience before God, right relationships, and the untainted joy of doing the right thing. It's sometimes hard to win when you're doing it right. And I think a lot of people actually believe that that's true. And that's why so many people in our culture today are doing all kinds of things the wrong way to somehow get ahead. The value system is about self in our culture today. So living a life of integrity, or as the Bible describes it, a blameless life, you know, is not high on our cultural value structure. But let me point out to us the value of living a life where you go to bed at night living with no regret. Well, you don't have to wonder what you told people because you're living the truth. And you don't have to remember which lie you told to whom. You know, and some people live that way. And so I want us to take a look at uh, Psalm 119 and take a look at how can we live a blameless life. But what does it mean to be blameless? It means to live without fault. It speaks of innocent behavior. It's really describing a person with moral ethics. It's reflected in our good behavior. You know, these are the people, and I was looking up these words, you know, it's, it's per, a person who is complete. Actually, Jesus says it this way in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, even as your Father in heaven is perfect, be perfect, right? Isn't that interesting? God is calling us to perfection. But when we think of that word, what's the first thing that comes into our mind? Somehow that you and I can live a life without sin, and that's an impossibility. So we're not talking about living a sinless life. There was only one who lived a life without sin. So what is a blameless life? Well, it's a life that's a godly life. It's a life that's desiring to be, you know, it's not defined by sin. It's actually sin is not the essence of their lives. It's, you know, it's not a self-centered, sin-filled life. It's about living to please an audience of one. And that's God himself. And how many have discovered <clears throat> it's very difficult to please people? Have anybody figured that out yet? You know, and sometimes we don't even please ourselves. But folks, I believe that what we ought to be trying to do is living to please one person. If we can say, you know what? What really matters in my life is I want to please God. I want to live for his honor. I want to live for his glory. I believe that you'll be able to live with yourself in a far different way. So now as we look in this long chapter of the Bible, I'm only, I'm only going to glean over 16 verses very quickly. And I'm going to talk about three keys, really, to living a blameless life. And the first one is simply the performance of God's word. In other words, that you and I are actually doers of the word of God. We're actually putting it into practice. You know, one of the great problems in the church today, especially in North America, is we have such great teaching all over the place. We learn so much, but we don't always put it into practice. We have more understanding than application. And what I'm going to say to us is sometimes we fool ourselves because we know things, and then we start thinking we're doing it. The reality is we have to apply it. And what really brings about change in our life is when we start doing what the Scripture says. So it's very important that we correctly understand it and then we begin to do it. Now, in verse 1 of Psalm 119, he says, Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk... And then it's, how, how can we live a blameless life? In other words, how can we live this life of integrity? How can we live this life that we're, we're godly? It says, by walking according to the law of the Lord. Now, I like this word, blessed. You know, you know think about it. it. You know, the Hebrew word is asher. 
And by the way, Asher is one of the names of one of the 12 tribes. Remember when Leah was calling her children's names out? She was calling them up because, you know, Hebrew names have significance to these people. And she said, do you know what? Now I have another son and now my husband will be happy. And Asher means happy. And so I love this text. It says, you could translate this if you wanted to. You could, instead of saying blessed, you could say happy are those whose ways are blameless. Isn't that beautiful? See, how many here would like to live a happy life? Anybody? I got my hand up. I don't want to live a miserable life. You know, how many here say my goal in life is to be unhappy? Anybody have that as your goal? You know? No, I think most of us would say I want to be happy. And actually the Bible describes how we can come about living a happy life. So here it says, it's the people who do Torah. It's the people who do the law. It's the people who do the word of God. It's the people whose life is governed by what God decrees. It's actually discovering that there's a way to live. And you know, the Bible talks about the Christian life or the, you know, even in the Old Testament, the godly life is following a path. And Jesus talks about, you know, a narrow path. And the reason he describes it as a narrow path is there's not a ton of people on it. How many have figured out that most people are not living a life of integrity? Most people are living a life conforming to a broad stream of cultures. As a matter of fact, you know, all these people that say, you know, I, I think this way, they're just conforming to the value structure of our society. They're embracing this broad pathway. They feel secure because they feel like everybody's doing it, but not everybody is. There are some people walking this narrow pathway. And those are the happy people. And we're going to talk about why are those people happy. So here we read in verse 4, it says, Blessed are they who keep, which is another word for apply, his statutes. You have laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. Now, I don't think most of people relate obedience to happiness. You know, that's not what people think about when they think of the word happy. How many say, you know, if I would have said, okay, word association tonight, happy, and you say, obedience. How many would have been the first word that have popped in your head? Ah, probably not, Pastor. That's not the first word that I think about when I think about the word happiness. And yet the Bible makes that as a, as a presentation. But let me build the bridge to that idea with you. Jesus says this in his gospel, in John's gospel. He said, if anyone loves me, he will what? He will obey my teaching. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Now, let me, let me connect the dots for us a little bit here tonight. How many here, you know, when we say to somebody uh, or somebody says to you, I really love you and then does things to hurt you. How many go, well, he's saying the right things, but he's doing things that are not consistent with what he's saying. And after a while, what, what do you start to believe? You start to believe what people are doing. Isn't that true? Eventually, the words become hollow. They, they lose their significance. You know, it's like the child that comes to the father and says, Dad, I really love you. And the father says, listen, if you really love me, you're going to do what I'm asking you to do. And why is the father, and we're talking about a healthy person here. Why would the father say, obeying me is an expression of love? Because the father says, I love you so much, I want what's best for you. And so what I'm telling you to do is what's best for you. And when you don't do that, what you're really doing is disrespecting me and not showing me honor, which is an expression of love. How many are beginning to see that this idea of obedience is actually a reflection of love? And so, you know, we could go on and, you know, a child can say to their parents, you know, I love you, mom. And the mom can say, well, if you really love me, you'll do what I'm asking you to do. You won't be doing something that's destructive to you. And that's the way God looks at humanity. God is our father and he loves every one of us. If we could only grasp how much God loves us. And what God is not doing is creating, you know, a miserable life for us. God wants us to live the happy life. God wants us to live a joy-filled life. God wants us to have peace in our hearts. But, you know, if you and I just do our thing that in rebellion to his word, we're the ones that are diminishing our lives. And that's what God is concerned about. You know, I love the powerful illustration of, of love that's demonstrated to God as told by John Newton. How many know who John Newton is? He was the guy that was a slaver in the 19th century who was trafficking in slaves, and God wonderfully saved him. He became a pastor and wrote an amazing hymn called Amazing Grace. 
John Newton tells this incredible story of the angels in heaven. And he said it this way. If two angels were receiving at the same moment a commission from God, one to go down and rule Earth's greatest empire, and the other to go down and sweep the streets of the smallest village in the, in the world, it would be a matter of entire indifference to each which service fell to their lot. Because for them, the joy of obeying God is what makes them happy. You see, it's not the actual task that's making them happy. It's the fact that they get to do the Father's will. How many think that's a beautiful image? So when you and I begin to understand that what really brings delight into our lives is really doing God's will, and to really reinforce this, the psalmist states that, and it's later picked up by the writer in the book of Hebrews, and it's speaking of Jesus who reflects this, and it says this in Psalm 40, verse 8, I delight to do your will, O God, and your law is within my heart. In other words, I enjoy doing what you're asking me to do. Isn't that an amazing thing? You know, can you imagine if we really got to that stage in our life where we said, you know, all I want is to do your will. That's the most important thing to me. I don't want to do my thing. I don't want to sin against you. I don't want to, you know, have my way. I want to just fulfill your will for my life. My greatest delight is to do your will. And that's what it was said about Jesus, his greatest delight, even though sometimes it was difficult to do the will of God. And how many know sometimes obeying is actually easier said than done? I know a number of years ago, my wife Patty was teaching you know, a grade one class in church. And she said to the kids, I want you to sit down now. They were getting a little rowdy. And they finally they sat down and she could hear this little girl. And sometimes, you know, people use their outside voices when they should be using their inside voices. And as she was sitting down, she was saying, she had just sat down. She said out loud, she said, I may be sitting on the outside, but I'm standing on the inside. You know, and I think a lot of times, you know, as Christians, sometimes we're externally conforming to the will of God, but reality is we're not happy about it. You know, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, but I'm not rejoicing in it. But yet I read this beautiful psalm, and then it's quoted by the writer of Hebrews, I delight, I desire to do your will. You know, to be like the angels who their greatest and chief delight is to do what God's asking them to do. And why do they do that? Because they have an unmitigated love towards God. They know what God is absolutely like. There's no question in their mind how good and loving and gracious God is. They are so amazed by God's grace to us human beings down here with all the nonsense we run God through. And God still loves us with that everlasting, faithful, steadfast love. What an amazing thing. You know, how many know we need God's help to actually do what he wants us to do? Anybody figured that out yet? You know, I mean, sometimes we want to do the right thing, but God, we go, God, we're a little short on, you know, enablement. And that's where grace comes in. That's where the spirit of God comes in. That's where prayer comes in. Listen to what the psalmist says here in verse five. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. In other words, God, I'm not always consistent. Isn't that true? And then he goes on to say, then I would not be put to shame. Oh, how many know that we, we bring shame on ourselves when we live in disobedience to God's will? Isn't that true? Sure it is. And when I consider all of your commands. So the result of doing what God reveals to us in his word is that it brings purity. It brings wholeness. You know, it brings health. It brings, you know, you know joy. It brings peace. It brings blamelessness into our lives. Now, I'm going to speak for myself here because I, you know, I, I like young people. And I'm not here to put any young people down, but I'll speak about myself. When I was younger, I, you know, a number of times I, I did things and my dad would say to me, now what, what were you thinking? And I have to admit at that stage in my life, I was thinking to myself, what was I thinking? You know? Anybody ever, I'm not going to have you raise your hand, but you, you can relate to what I'm talking about. You know, it, you know you, you, you've done the wrong thing and you've been caught and your parent is asking you, what were you thinking? And then I realized later on that most people's minds don't develop until they're fully developed at 25, 26, 27 years old. So, you know, when we're younger, we have a tendency to have great enthusiasm. Oh, I love enthusiasm. How many people love enthusiasm? I love it. 
I love youthful enthusiasm. That's why I like young people. They're so enthusiastic. But sometimes it goes right into recklessness. Anybody discovered that? You know, you don't always think and you just kind of go over the line. You know, we're having fun and then it becomes dangerous. You know, anybody know what I'm talking about? Stop thinking. Why'd you do that? I don't know. And really, they don't know. They just go over the line. Poor decision making. And why does that happen? A lot of time because of inexperience. You know, usually as you get older, hopefully you're getting wiser. Of course, there's no fool like an old fool, I say, right? You know, please learn from your mistakes. Better yet, learn from other people's mistakes. That's why we read the Bible so we don't have to make the mistakes and we can learn from other people's mistakes. And so the question is raised here by the psalmist, how can a young person walk blamelessly? Isn't that a great question? I had somebody the other day say, you know, pastor, last week I was preaching on sin. They said, you know, I really want to be an overcomer in this area. What should I do? And I quoted Psalm 119. It's a beautiful text. It explains how we can get out of sin. It says, how can a young man or young woman keep their way pure? It's raising the question. And the answer is, by living according to your word. In other words, obeying God's word. Doing what God says. Yeah, but I don't feel like doing it. I said, I don't really care how you feel. Are you going to let your emotions define your life? Listen, God is laying out for you a pathway. As a matter of fact, later on in Psalm 119, it says, your word is a lamp unto my feet. It's actually illuminating. It's giving me light in which way I should go. How many have ever been in a room and you're stumbling around in darkness? Anybody ever kick your toe against something? Oh my goodness, that's painful, right? Oh, you can just feel it right now in your body as I'm talking about it, you know? Or you're falling over things, or you're bumping into things, or you're hitting things, you're just going, where is the light switch? I want to see where I'm going. A lot of people are walking in darkness. They can't see where they're headed. Here the word of God says to us, the word is a light. It's a clear path. You can see what you need to do. God's telling it to you. And then at verse 11, it says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Lord, it's so important that I know what your standard is. It's so important that I discover who you are and what you're like so I can follow you in your way. Verse 3 says, they do nothing wrong. They walk in his ways. How many would like to say, man, it's so awesome. I'm walking with God. I feel no regret. I'm living without shame. I'm living with a clean conscience. I'm doing the right thing. I'm watching. You know, life may not always be easy. There may be challenges, but I know that I'm honoring God and I know that God will honor me. What a way to live. It's an awesome way to live. You know, we take God's word as a map that will guide us through the journey of life. We don't have to get lost. We can walk through life knowing where we are at and where we're going by daily referring to God's map, God's direction for our life found in his word. You know, they've actually done surveys that have actually explained that people who are daily Bible readers live a different life than people who don't read their Bibles daily. That's the breakoff point, folks. I'm telling you right now. If I could give you one secret to a successful life, here it is. Read your Bible every day. Become a daily Bible reader. You know, I'm so enamored with it, I journal. I never used to, but I do now. I, first thing I do is I have a journal. I have a book that I use as a journal. I take my journal and my Bible. First thing I do is I open my journal. I put the date down. I write the scriptures that I'm about to, you know, read. And I actually make those scriptures my prayer during that day. Actually, what I'm doing, and this is a lot of fun, is I put note to myself. I just read the word note. And I'm constantly exploring and discovering things in the word of God. And it's almost every single day. It's amazing. And some days I just get four or five thoughts and I go, wow, this is so amazing. And you know what happens? This is the good part. I'm going to tell you. When you're reading the Bible every day, when you get into your, the day, you know, after you've done this, you come, I, I come to work and I'm thinking about what I've read. And I'm thinking about the ideas. And, I'm, and you know, to me, it's so amazing. There's always a theme that seems to come to my mind as I'm reading. There's always something that really stands on. I'm reflecting on it. And I come to this place. And I'm running into situations. And it's, it's, it's absolutely amazing how I go, wow, thank you, Lord. It's exactly what I needed for today. It's actually the wisdom that I need to make good decisions today. It's the wisdom that I need to pass on to someone who's going through difficulties. The actual thoughts and words that I need to convey to others. And you know what the sad part is? 
If I hadn't have taken the time, I wouldn't have known those thoughts and I wouldn't have passed that on. I wouldn't have made decisions shaped by those ideas. I'd be functioning in my own understanding and I would be making some stupid decisions. Can we afford not to be spending time with God, gaining and gleaning the ideas and the concepts that we're going to need for that day. I tell you, it really shapes your life. And if you're not doing this, I'm not here to reprimand you. I'm here to say, listen, I'm your friend. I'm coming beside you. I'm saying I would make this a daily habit. I would make a guarantee if you do this for the next 21 days, the next 30 days, and your life isn't different, you can come back to me and say, Pastor, it doesn't work. I will make a guarantee your life is going to move in a very profound and a different trajectory than what it's currently doing right now. You're going to be operating in wisdom and not in your own understanding. The blameless life is where we keep learning and growing and applying the truths in our lives. The psalmist rejoice and praise that God's going to continue to teach him his word. Look at verse 12. Praise be to you, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. And I would start in the morning by praying this prayer. Lord, open the eyes of my heart. Lord, give me understanding. Speak into my life through this words. Illuminate it to my mind. Lord, Help me not to just read words. Help me to hear your voice speaking to me. Give me insight. Give me wisdom from above. Isn't that a great way to start? What do you think God's going to go? No, I don't want to do that. The Bible says if any man lacks wisdom, he can ask of God. God will not withhold that wisdom from him. You know, you guys could really go to a whole new level. People are going to think you're brilliant. They're going to say, man, I just can't believe how smart you've become. All you're doing is operating in the wisdom of God. And it is powerful. Really, it's really life-changing. This learning is really an internalization of God's word. It's not just mental information. It's not just an external conformity to God's word. It is a heart-changing desire to really know God. Verse 7 says, I will praise you with an upright heart as I learn your righteous laws. And then the psalmist meditates on the word of God. Verse 15, I meditate on your precepts and I consider your way. So what is meditating? I'll just briefly you know, share. It's thinking deeply about what you're reading. So it's not so much that I'm reading so much of the Bible, but I'm reading deeply into the Bible. I'm thinking about it. You know, I'm asking God to pull my mind together. It becomes a discipline. Some of you say, Pastor, I can't remember what I read of two minutes later. That's because you're not writing things down. You're not asking questions about the text. You're not really applying your mind to it. You're just drifting. You're just going through the motion. You need to internalize it. Um, And I like what Packer says. I'm not going to quote these two, but here at the very end he says, often it's a manner of arguing with oneself, reasoning oneself out of moods of doubt and unbelief into a clear apprehension of God's power and grace. How many say, you know, how many have ever gotten up and go, oh, this is a terrible day. I don't want to get out of bed. I don't want to do anything today. I'm kind of a grump. Anybody relate to this? Am I talking to any people here that can honestly relate to what I'm talking about? Do you know what happens? Here's what you need to do. You need to have a little talk with yourself. You know, you know, the psalmist actually talks to himself. I think it's important we learn how to talk to ourselves. Here's what you need to say. Listen to what Psalm 42 says. He says, soul, why are you so discouraged? He's talking to him. Why are you so down? Why are you so bummed out? Why are you so blue? You know, there was an old hymn years ago. It says, count your many blessings, name them one by one. You know, if you're in a bummer of a mood, sit down, get out a piece of paper and say all the reasons I should be thankful. Draw down the list. Start out with number one. Am I a follower of Jesus Christ? Boy, that's already. Why in the world would God forgive me? I'm a wretch. Why would God reveal himself to me? I deserve to have a good slap in the head rather than, you know, arms wrapped around me. Boy, God, you have been so merciful to me. Check number one. I'm saved. Boy, am I ever thankful for that. I could just keep going down the list. You know, I live in a country, for the most part, that we have... All these beautiful resources. How many here? We probably eat three meals a day. Some of us snack all day long. I don't know what we're doing. But, you know, parts of the world, they're starving. Do you realize right now we're living in a world that one of the greatest famines in human history is transpiring right now? Is that amazing? And here we are, you know, living one wonderfully. And, you know, we're walking around. Oh, I'm so blue. Life is so hard. Yeah, there may be challenges in our life. Hey, if you're healthy, better check that box off. Hey, man, a lot of people are sick, but I'm healthy. Hey, praise God. You know, all the parts are working this morning, you know, right? Hallelujah. Hey, I can get out of bed. Some people can't. Yes, thank you, Lord. How many are getting the idea? You know, a lot of times, 
you know, we allow our emotional attitude to totally control us. And we're walking around, I'm so blue, you know. And, and sometimes we need to take a look at ourselves. You know, we look down and say, oh, I don't have any friends. Hey, I've got Jesus as my friend. Hallelujah. You know, I don't have resources. I have the father who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Thank you very much. Lord, just take out one cow and slaughter it for me, would you? I like to sell a little hamburger meat and get some income from it. You know, you guys got to use your imagination. Come on now. Isn't that the way it works? Of course it does. We need to talk to God. I think it's important we actually meditate on what God has to say. Do you know, life is 100% attitudinal which means it's all happening between your ears. You know, these professional athletes, I like sports. And I listen to these guys and they say, when you're at an elite level as a sports person, anybody can win on any given day. Isn't that true, Mark? That's the way it works. It's all up in our heads. The the difference between winning and losing is in your mind. Most of us don't realize that. That's how sharp it is. And I'm going to say this. Most of us as Christians don't realize that the difference between joy and misery is an attitude. That's it. That's the end of it. Yeah, but you don't know what I'm being challenged about. Hey, listen, there are people that are experiencing greater challenges living in absolute joy because they've understood the joy of the Lord is their strength. Think about what Paul says here in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. He says, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of our, of our culture. You know, on the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. What strongholds are he talking about? He says, we demolish arguments in every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. In other words, our culture is in absolute rebellion against God. How many have figured that out? Anybody know that? This culture is in rebellion against God. So if you want to kind of, you know, think the way the world thinks, you're going to be messed up. You're going to be in a rebellious mindset. You're going to be a grumpy, nasty, miserable person. You know, I like it was Augustine who said, the Christian should be a hallelujah from head to toe. That's true. We should be the most happy people on the planet. We should be bubbling over. We should be full of joy. You say, how can I get that way? Try worshiping God. Do you know how hard it is to stay grumpy when you're praising God? How many know that's pretty hard to do? Try it. I'm going to give you an acid test. Here's Here's an assignment for you. The next time you're grumpy, I want you to spend 10 minutes just worshiping and singing and praising God. 10 minutes. And tell me after 10 minutes, I'm still grumpy. You cannot worship God and stay grumpy. It just doesn't work. You know? Well, some of you don't know. You don't try it. You'll find out. Let me move on. You know, the second key is the pursuit of God. When we put God first, and that can only be truly said when, we, when he is the one we're seeking, we will live differently. In other words, if God is... First in my life, is he the one I'm pursuing? He is above everything else in my life. Then things are going to be different in your life. I'll make that guarantee. But a lot of times what we're pursuing is other things. And those are called idols. And idols promise us a lot of stuff, but they never deliver. That's the tragedy of them. It says, verse 2, Blessed are they who keep his statutes and seek him with all their hearts. Let me ask you a question. Are you seeking God with everything that is within you? Well, you're going to have an opportunity. We're going to do prayer and fasting again. We do this three or four times a year. We're coming up to it in the month of April. Three nights of prayer and fasting in our church. We get a chance to seek God with all of our hearts. I'm going to talk more about that later. Not tonight, but another time. But let me just move on and say this. It was Augustine who said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Now, think about why he said that. He's saying simply this, and I'm getting this idea from John Piper in his book, Desiring God. And he said he was reading uh, uh, Base Pascal, and he said, I realize the truth that all men seek happiness. How many say that's probably true? Most people are not seeking unhappiness. Most people think that what they're doing is going to give them happiness. Isn't that true? Why would we do it? This is what we're going after. How many say, Pastor, I'm honestly seeking unhappiness? Raise your hand. That's what you're going for. That's your goal. How many say, no, I want to be happy? How many have their hands up? I want to be happy. I got my hands up. Sure, of course. That's, the, that's what people are all about. This is without exception, he says. Whatever different means they use, they all move towards the sand. Now, you see, John Piper, who's pastoring in Minneapolis, he said, you know, I used to somehow think, you know, uh, basically you had to kind of, you know, feel bad about yourself, not think about yourself, self-negation. That was kind of the thoughts he thought about Christianity. And then... Pascal wrote later, and this is the point I want to get at. He said, 
All the momentary pleasures cannot fulfill the longing of our souls. Now, why is that? I'm going to tell you why. You and I are eternal. And anything that's momentary will only last momentarily. So if you want something to fill your soul, you have to go for something that's eternal. Does that that make sense? And so here's the deal. When you and I connect with God, who's eternal, and you and I, who are eternal, connect with the eternal God, something happens that's eternal. And I believe the joy that we can experience in the presence of God is beyond anything we can ever experience in this life. And every once in a while, we get a little taste of heaven. How many have had a real encounter with God where you can say, I got a little taste of heaven? And you're just going, man, I, I could live like this the rest of my days. This is so awesome. Let's just keep it going. But, you know, it just doesn't stay that way. There's fluctuations in that. But truly, that's what's phenomenal about it. He said, praising God, the highest calling of humanity and our eternal vocation did not involve renunciation, but rather the consummation of the joy I so desired. My old effort to achieve worship with no self-interest in it proved to be a contradiction in terms. Worship is basically adoration, and we adore only what delights us. There's no such thing as sad adoration or unhappy praise, and I totally agree with him. That is so exciting. So, we need to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all these other things that, you know, we need to sustain our earthly life, God will take care of. Don't make that the goal. Make God the goal. Colossians says it this way, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. So worship is not just personal introspection, or we would be worshiping our feelings. Worship is not even a warm glory, we'd be worshiping that. We worship one outside of ourselves. We concentrate on him, we praise him, we adore him, we hear his word, for he is announcing it to us. We listen in holy awe to the word of God, for it is part of all of scripture that is given by the outbreathing or the inspiration of God, and is personally necessary for my correction and my instruction in righteousness. I love that quote by Roger Palms. So the end of obeying God's word and pursuing God is that he becomes our joy. Isn't that nice? Where God is our joy and we enjoy it, enjoy him. Listen to what he says in verse 14. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. You know, I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. How can we really say we love God and then neglect the word of God? How can we say we really love God and neglect knowing who he is? You know, the one thing, and this is true, and, I, and I've been married for a long time, I can say this. The one thing that my wife wants more than anything else, this is, gonna, this is what she wants. She wants time with me. That's the most important thing to her. She wants time with me. She goes, I enjoy just being with you. And you know, when we neglect someone, we don't spend time with them, we're not communicating how much we love them. As a matter of fact, when we really love someone, we want to spend as much time as we can with that person. Isn't that true? And if we say, oh God, I really love you, and then never spend any time with them, God's going, really? You know, God's pretty smart. How many know that? He's going, you're saying one thing, but your actions are doing another. How many know actions carry more weight than words? Your actions need to be congruent or together with what you are saying. Let me give you the third key, and that's a passion for prayer. Love desires to communicate. I mean, that's true. And really, what is prayer? Communication with God. You know, if I really, really love someone, I want to share what's going on in my life with that person. You know, to share our thoughts, our fears, without being judged or criticized, but to be understood. And when necessary, yes, even to be corrected. To be accepted and supported makes for a healthy, loving relationship. You know, how many know that marriage is probably the closest picture to our relationship to God? Actually, God uses that as a metaphor to describe the level of nearness that we're supposed to have with him and the exclusiveness we're supposed to have with him. But I love what Walter Kaiser Jr. says, and this is going to talk about the nature of God's love. And let me show you how different it is than what our culture thinks love is. You're going to find out God's love is unlike human love. Listen to what he says. In the same way God's way is the most generous in offering us pardon and acceptance while it still maintains a high and holy standard of his righteousness to which he's calling us to. I, mean, I think that's interesting. God says, I love you and I accept you just where you're at, but I'm calling you to a higher level of living. How many have discovered that? And then it says, rather than giving up and tending to condone our sins and failures, 
to meet his highest standards. In other words, he doesn't lower the standards because we're struggling with them. Rather, he faithfully continues to love us without making excuses for our failures or deciding that he must lower the standard to meet us where we're at. This is what our culture is doing all the time, constantly lowering the standards. How many know that's true? That's what's happening. It is precisely in this tension of forgiving the most and condoning the least that we can understand the uniqueness of God's love. And if I had a camera right now, I'd take a picture of this statement. This is so profound if you think about it. Think about what he's saying. He's saying, we need to understand God forgives the most, but condones the least. Now, why would God be like that? Why is it that God can forgive us of everything and yet hold us to such a high standard? And I'm going to tell you why. Because you and I are made in his image and sin diminishes us. And God loves you and me so much, he doesn't want us to be diminished in any way. So whenever we're in rebellion, whenever we're sinning, we're diminishing ourselves. That's why God will not condone sin because it's wrecking us. And if you really love someone, you go, I can't stand to see you destroy yourself. Come on now. If you really love someone, you're going to think that way. I can't, it breaks my heart to watch how you're throwing your life away. You're destroying yourself. Isn't that challenging? Is that the truth? It sure is. You know what our world says, our society says? Oh, just do what you want to do. Oh, we love you. You can do anything you want to do. You know what? You think that's love? Let me tell you what that really is. That's indifference. Because in our culture today, we have a a level of carnage that you won't believe. I'm constantly picking people off the scrap heap of sin and looking at these broken lives that are so unhealthy and so messed up in their thinking. And you have to start, you're not even starting, you know, even to instruct You've got, to un, you've got to almost redo and reprogram everything about them because all they've ever known is how messed up. Their thinking is so messed up. It's hard for them to think straight. It's so tragic. What am I saying to us tonight? I'm saying, hey, why don't we get to know God? Hey, why don't we make God the chief desire and delight of our lives? Why don't we become more like the angels who, for us, the most important thing to do is your will, God. I delight to do your will. I want to be like Jesus. Man, you tell me to do something? Sure, Lord, it's easy. I want to do it. I delight in doing it, not because I'm enjoying the task, but because I enjoy who you are. You know, I was a little boy, loved my dad. How many know little boys really look up to their dads? Isn't that true? Even big boys look up to their dads. My dad, one day, he's a hard worker. You know, to make a little extra money, he went out and shoveled a train, you know, a a boxcar full of coal. How many know that's a lot of work? You know, how many know you're going to come out of there pretty black? And I was probably about five years old. My dad goes, Paul, do you want to come with me? He said, yep, love to. And I'm, I'm telling you, I worked with my dad shoveling coal out of a box car. And I loved every minute of it. Why? Because I was doing it with my dad. And my dad was, you know, he had, my dad had some other issues, but this was so neat. He just goes, man, I'm so proud of you. You worked so hard today. I watched you. You just went at it. You know, I was black as could be, you know, when I got done. I was just covered with coal dust. But boy, was that ever neat because I got to do it with my daddy. And boy, I think we need to catch an image of this in our minds, to do things with our daddy, to do the will of God, to spend time with him, to know what he's really like, to understand him, to understand his ways is so powerful. And then I would say this, You know, God doesn't just put up with our sins. He loves us too much for that. He addresses them. It seems that nothing that we do can be done without God's enabling grace and power to accomplish it. So, you know, maybe you're struggling with things in your life. You know what I would do? I would say, God, I struggle with this area in my life. Would you help me? What do you think God's going to do? No, I'm not interested in helping you. Of course he's interested in helping you. Don't you think he has the power to help you overcome that? Of course he's got that power. You and I just have to be willing. And I want to close with a story. I love this story about a, a young man in Africa. His testimony, his name was Basio Kangusi. He was a school teacher in Rwanda. And he was so discouraged by the lack of life in his church and in the powerlessness of his own experience. And so instead of criticizing other people, because I've heard this over the years, you know, why doesn't the church do this, church do that? Who is the church? We are. And so this young man got down and spent a week in fasting and prayer and searched his own heart. And at the end of it, 
you know, he realized that he needed to be a different man. He asked God to forgive him. He said, God, change me. And he came out of that experience and he confessed his sins to those he had wronged, including his wife and his children. He went to his students and asked for forgiveness. And, you know, his life was so changed. It had an impact. How many know that when you're not attacking people, but you're the one addressing the things in your life, you're impacting people's lives. And pretty soon, God's spirit began to move in that community. It was amazing. People began to confess their sins. And I'm going to tell you what real revival is. I think a lot of people think it's a bunch of people jumping up and down and shouting. You know what real revival is? Is when we have absolute conviction of sin for, for our own lives. And we recognize it's not the other person's got the problem. It's me that's got the problem. And you know what happened? They had a move of God in their community. And so much so that he was invited to travel to Uganda and bring his message of God's work, what was happening in their community. And so he went to Uganda and began to share with the leaders this message of God's repentance. And the fire of God fell on that place in Uganda, just as it had in Rwanda. And, and then a few days later, he died. And so within a matter of a few weeks, this great beginning of this great move of God, the leader, the person who initiated it, was gone. But you know what's amazing? That was 1935. And in those countries today, they're still experiencing God's spirit moving. Isn't that amazing? One person helped facilitate a tremendous transformation that extended beyond even his generation. You know, we look at our culture in Canada today and we can see the moral deterioration. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to say, we got problems here, folks. We're deteriorating really quickly. And we can get upset with governments, we can get upset with people, we can get upset with unsaved people. I'm going, hey, they're just behaving like unsaved people. Isn't that true? But I'm saying, you know, let's take a look at ourselves and say, God, what, what difference can my life make? And I'm going to have a stand. And uh, I'm going to shoot up here five things I want to leave you with. Yeah, there's a lot of things i could have said, but here's the five things I'm leaving you with. And somebody in the first service today did something really interesting. They took their, their, their uh, what do you call it, their phone, and they took a picture of this. And here's what I want you to think about. Where am I presently disobeying God? You've got to ask yourself that question. See, you can hear a sermon, walk out, and nothing changes in your life. Or you can say, okay, I'm going to take this to heart. I'm going to ask God to search me today. I'm going to ask God to deal with one thing in my life. You know, I said to myself, listen. All I got to do is work on changing one person here today. That's me, not you. So I'm gonna, I can go down here and I can say, okay, Paul, what am I presently doing to disobey God? Show me, Lord, and help me to change. What ways am I actively seeking God? What am I doing that really shows that I'm really pursuing God? Number three, what are some of the ways I can develop a better prayer life? I actually mentioned a few to you here today that you might think about incorporating? Or what are some specific things that God wants me to apply in my life? Or what am I currently doing to keep growing and learning in my understanding of God? You know, I'm going to just tell you in my life, I actually have goals. You know, I'm getting a little older, but I'm not getting any slower. I'm actually working as hard as I've ever worked. I'm pursuing God as aggressively as I've ever done it. I'm studying scripture at the highest level I've ever studied. You know, people my age, they're on the downslope. I'm still climbing the mountain. I'm still pursuing God. I'm outside of a comfort zone. You see, you know why most Christians don't do this? They want to live in comfort. I'm going, you can't change and be comfortable. You have to make a decision, okay? If I'm going to learn to do something, it's not comfortable. How many of that's true? You know... I just made decisions. I'm going to learn to do things at whatever age I'm at. I'm not going to let my age stop me. But when you start doing it, it's not normal. It's not comfortable. I'll tell you that right now. I've had that experience. I'm learning Greek and Hebrew right now. You say, Pastor, is that comfortable? No, it's not. But I'll tell you, it's rewarding. It's changing my understanding. My, my, my view of Scripture is so more extensive and I am more excited about Jesus Christ today than I've ever been in my entire life. I'm more excited about his word. I'm more excited about his church. I'm more excited about the future. Why am I this way? Because I'm more in love with Christ all the time. I'm more excited about my family. I believe that God is going to do great things in our church. Matter of fact, my prayer 
is that the people that I'm looking at in three services are going to change our city. I believe that you guys are going to change our nation. I actually believe you're going to go beyond your generation. But you and I have to get serious and say, God, what is in me that needs to change? And give me the grace to change. Show me the steps to do it and give me the strength to follow through. And when I get discouraged, help me, Lord, to keep going. And when other people are dropping off like flies, because believe me, they do, you'll be running and you'll be looking around. You'll be going, hey, where are these people running with me? There were some. Listen, if you're going to be a world changer, you've got to keep going. You've got to keep running. We're running a marathon, folks. This is not the 100-yard you know, a hundred meter race. This is a marathon. You've got to make a decision. So with every head bowed tonight, how many here are going to say, you know, pastor, I want to be a world changer, but I know it's going to have to start in me. And I'm saying, Lord, work on me. That's you. Just raise your hand. That's, I got my hand up. I'm going to say, Lord, I want to be used of you. I want you to do a work in my life. I'm not satisfied where I'm at. I want to keep growing and developing. I want to get to know you better. And you know, if that's your heart cry, God's going to hear that cry. And he's going to help you. And things are going to happen, folks, in a very powerful, good way. It's amazing what God can do. So I'm going to ask you to do something else today. I'm going to have you just come to the aisles and just join hands. I don't do this. This is very infrequent. rarely do this. Just join hands together right now. We're going to pray for each other tonight. Because I want to believe God is going to do a great work in our lives as believers. And I know most of you are believers tonight. But let's just pray tonight that God would do this amazing work. Amen. So Lord, we just come together as a body of believers. Lord, we ask that the change begin in us. Lord, the change begin in me. And Lord, I pray that you would give us the spiritual power and strength and the grace to do a work in our lives that may be at times a little discomforting, but Lord, it's developing, we're growing, we're changing. And I pray, Lord, as we are moving in that direction, that you will give us moments of great joy as we see the change and transformation that's happening in us. And Lord, as we're changing and being transformed, help us to become transformational agents in other people just because of what you're doing in us. And we thank you for that, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you as you live a blameless life.